Our preacher today is not going to be me. Uh, it is going to be the Reverend Dr. David Filson. Uh, David has been ministering in Nashville for over 20 years. He's the pastor of theology and discipleship at Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville. He's also an adjunct professor of systematic theology and apologetics at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. And more than that, David has been uh, a great friend and a great mentor to me since uh, I've come into this presbytery and since uh, I've been able to learn from him, he has been gracious and patient with me. Uh, so it's my pleasure to welcome David Filson to come preach to us. Um, great privilege to be with y'all. Some of y'all I have known for so many years. We go way, way back, uh, Rick and Lisa and Jim and Kim and a number uh, of us have, uh, have walked some miles together. It's a privilege to be here at Trinity and to be in Mitchell's pulpit. Uh, I'll tell you this, I have been, as Mitchell said, I've been in the National Presbytery, um, well, really since the early 90s, been ordained in the Presbytery for over 20 years, and uh, I have been um, serving on what we call the Theological Examining Committee, which I know sounds like a party to you, uh, but it's what uh, a minister has to go through uh, in order to be ordained uh, in the Presbyterian Church in America, particularly in the National Presbytery. I've been doing this for a number of years, been teaching in seminaries and been uh, working with young ministers for a long time, but uh, I want to let you know uh, it's a privilege to be here where Mitchell preaches because uh, I think about young men like, like your pastor, and I think to myself, and I mean this with all sincerity, he really, guys like Mitchell really are my hope uh, for the future of the PCA. I wish, I wish we could clone Mitchell and just sprinkle him all over the denomination. I really, I really do. Um, you know, I've, I have been doing it a long time, and I see a lot of ego in young ministers. I rarely see this much earnestness in a young minister. So y'all are blessed. Y'all are really blessed. Um, this week, Wednesday morning, I got to be at the airport at 4 a.m. because I'm taking a group, I'm chaperoning a group of seniors uh, from Christ Presbyterian Academy to Orlando. We're going to go to Universal Studio. And I don't know, how many of you have been to Universal in Orlando before? Okay, have you, been, have you ever ridden the Incredible Hulk? You know what I'm talking about? The Hulk? Okay, how many of you love roller coasters? All right, the Incredible Hulk is simply amazing. Um, they call it the Incredible Hulk because you're green when you get off the ride. Um, zero to 40 miles per hour in under two seconds under a steep hill, 110 feet tall. I mean, you are shot like a cannon. None of this sort of chain pulling you up like the old Wabash cannonball and then gravity takes over. None of that. This is one of those drive tire system roller coasters. It has 230 electrical motors powering a set of tires that, that pinch the underside of the train of cars and they squeeze it and then they force it up the hill like a lightning bolt just shot out of a cannon. Takes your breath away. By the time you catch your breath, I mean, you can't stop laughing, you can't stop screaming, right? Each launch requires, are you ready for this? Eight megawatts of power. Now, I'm no electrical engineer, but I did some snooping around the interwebs, and I found uh, a conversion uh, calculator from kilowatt hours to kilowatts. 
And I discovered that the average household uses, are you ready for this, 28.9 kilowatt hours in a 24-hour period. 28.9 kilowatt hours in a 24-hour period is what the average house uses, which equals just over 1,204 watts of power each day. The Incredible Hulk, the roller coaster, requires 8 megawatts, 8 million watts each time it launches a train of cars up the hill. So in order to keep the local power grid in Orlando, Florida from experiencing brownouts every time that it launches a train of cars, they built several power generators just for that roller coaster to account for the power that, that goes out, the power surge that goes out each time you take flight, reaching speeds of up to 70 miles per hour. It's fast. It's fast. Mark's gospel is fast. Mark's gospel is a high-speed gospel. In fact, there's a special Greek word, euthios. It appears some 42 times in this gospel alone. It is only used 12 other times in the rest of the New Testament, but 42 times in the gospel of Mark, euthios. It, it, it is used maybe four times in the Greek translation of the Old Testament known as the Septuagint. And so the predominant number of times that we see this word, euthios, in the scriptures is in the gospel of Mark. Mark loves this word. It means suddenly, immediately, straight away. Mark doesn't let grass grow under Jesus' feet. He's on the move, on mission. Mark rushes us to the cross and leaves us breathless. By the time we get there, and our text this morning is going to have us breathless, and in the end, when we catch our breath, we are going to laugh. Mark chapter 5, beginning in verse 21. Hear the word of the Lord. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and, and lay your hands on her that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus, and came up behind him in the crowd, and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, 
Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was, taking her by the hand. He said to her, Talithi kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. The word of the Lord. Indeed, it is the word of the Lord. It is more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold. It is sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Would you join me briefly in prayer? Gracious Father, we thank you for this year word. And we pray in the strong name of Jesus, Lord, that... Um, that you would give us grace to see that wherein we fail, Jesus, the Son of God, on our behalf, mightily prevails. For we ask it in his glorious name, the seed who crushed the serpent's head and the Alpha and Omega. Amen. This text tells us a number of things, not the least of which is the nature of our suffering and the fear that comes up in the midst of it. I am entitling this sermon, A Tale of Two Daughters. One daughter... 12 years old, Luke 8, 42. She had a father who loved her, his only daughter, Luke tells us, a, a father who came before Jesus in stark, soul-searing fear and fell prostrate on his face and interceded on behalf of his daughter. My little daughter is at the point of death, eschatos eche in the Greek. She is near her eschaton. She is near her end. There's no father here this morning uh, who, if we would let ourselves sort of slow down and enter this man's pain and fear, uh, upon whom this would not be lost. Can you imagine anything that strikes fear into our hearts more than the thought of losing a child? And some of us here perhaps have known that fear, and we have walked that, that road, that weary road. Mark is a roller coaster ride through the five things you and I fear the most. Right out of the gate, right out of the gate, the five things you and I fear the most, Jesus shows himself powerful, strong over these things sickness, sin, natural calamity, the demonic realm. And now he's, a put, he's about to put death on notice that it will not have the last word. A little girl, 12 years of life, a loving father calling her daughter every day of her life. A little girl, he says, and then a woman who had been called everything imaginable for the last 12 years, unclean, a pariah, despicable, filthy, a sinner. We know the kind of sin she's been involved in to have this kind of physical condition. Loose women get what they deserve. Stay away. Don't come near us lest you taint us, lest you make us unclean. Stay away. She's an outcast. No one advocating for her. Twelve years of belonging for the little girl. Twelve years of longing for this woman with the issue of blood. You see in Leviticus chapter 16, verses 25 to 33, uh, we see the details of the law of God as it relates to things like bodily discharges as a reminder of the need for sexual purity and how these normal biological processes, the loss of life fluid, um, 
from uh, the organs of procreation were a picture of death, which had no place in the presence of the God of life. Now, to be sure, some of these laws in the Old Testament uh, seem strange to us, but God established these things not as a means in and of themselves, but as a means to an end, an object lesson to point us to our need of rescue. Galatians 3.24, the law of God was put in charge to lead us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. Women are to wait seven days and then be ritually clean uh, to enter then the temple or the synagogue after, after their cycle. Uh, she's been waiting for 12 years. 12 years. She's cut off from the very life of Israel. She can't worship. She's not worthy to worship. She is unclean. If she touches one of us, or if we accidentally brush up against her, right, we're going to be unclean. We're not going to be worthy of going into worship. No, no one invites her to lunch after church. She can't go to church. She might as well have been a leper, cut off spiritually, socially. No man is going to marry her and remain unclean. If, if he had, he would have divorced her once this issue that she had manifested itself. How could she even work to provide for herself? She was destitute. She was hopeless. This affected every aspect of her weary life. And the list of cures in those days were, were bizarre and superstitious, applying certain kinds of crushed leaves to the body, carrying around a dried partridge egg in a special cloth. There are all kinds of superstitious efforts at cures. She had spent her last dime seeking medical help. She just got worse and worse. How, how long since she had laughed? How long since she had danced? How long since she had just had a chance to catch her breath without feeling so lost and alone? A father afraid, afraid for the life of his little girl and a woman used up, unclean, ostracized, unwanted, untouchable, who can't even remember life without fear. What do you fear the most? What fear is gripping you even right now? Uh, maybe it just squeezes you every once in a while like a boa constrictor reminding you that it's there. Do you ever find yourself scared to even get out of bed in the morning? Afraid of being shot like a cannon along the rails and the twists and turns of life. And you're just reaching out everywhere for the panic button, right? Fear just sort of, sort of operates like a low-grade anxiety in your life. So, sort, of, sort of like the, 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 the operating system under every app that you open up in your life. There's sort of a low-grade anxiety there as the operating system of your life. Jairus was a very, very important man. A ruler of the synagogue is a man of faith. He was not a rabbi as such, but rather a man who was in charge of the stewardship of the building, the synagogue. He ordered the worship liturgy. He guarded the Old Testament scrolls that were housed at the synagogue. He selected the scrolls that would, that would be read on the Sabbath. His importance in the esteem of the people could not be overstated. He was central in the community, and he came with desperate faith. And that's just the kind of faith Jesus likes. Just the kind of faith Jesus likes. Anyone here desperate enough for Jesus this morning? He knew Jesus could prevent death. Jesus, you got to come now. If you'll come and lay your hands on her, she'll live. Time is of the essence. My little girl, you have to come. Euthios, now, immediately. So off they went. 
This woman wasn't important. She was unseen for the last 12 years. And when she was spotted, we all know to stay away from her, and she knows to stay away from us. She was not important, but she was about to be an irrepressible interruption. She's one of the bravest people in the whole Bible, this woman. One of the bravest people in the entirety of Scripture. And here are a couple of ways that uh, she helps us understand the nature of saving faith. One, evangelism always involves an apprehension of some truth about Jesus. She had heard enough about him. She had heard enough about Jesus that she knew her desperate situation needed his touch. So she knew enough about him. Number two, her faith was tinctured with a bit of superstition. You see, in those days, there, there was a belief that brushing up against the garments of some great man uh, could work magic for you. The, the point is this, she did not have a PhD in theology. Her faith was not fully informed. It was not fully formed. Uh, it had gaps. It had weaknesses. Her faith was anemic, just like her poor body with its constant loss of blood. But Jesus did not reject her because she did not have all of the details about him correct. She was missing some details about Jesus, but she was full of desperation. So if you're here this morning and you uh, don't have all your questions about Jesus answered yet, he's not put off by that. She is you. She is me. You ever think... I don't know much about the Bible. I don't know much about Jesus besides the people knew all the crap I've done in my life. They'd run. They'd be so embarrassed for me. They'd be embarrassed they knew me. They knew all the stuff I'd done. Yet Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 to 30, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Anyone want to get in on that this morning? Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and Learn of me. That word learn is the word for disciple. The word disciple in the Greek New Testament is methetes. It means a learner. Come and learn of me. Uh, we read in, in Mark chapter 3, 14 that Jesus drew disciples so they could be with him. Intimacy. In Luke 6, 44, we read that Jesus drew disciples so that they could become like him. Imitation. Intimacy with Jesus fuels imitation of Jesus. That order is important. Intimacy with Jesus fuels imitation of Jesus. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. My yoke is easy. My burden is light, and you will find rest for your soul's rest. She needed it. Jairus needed it. You need it. I need it. We can get in on it. We see something here about the nature of our suffering, but also this text tells us about the nature of our Savior, there's an undeniable miracle about to take place here. She pressed through, reached out, grabbed the hem of his robe. Immediately, immediately she knew that she was healed. Jesus stopped the frantic rush to Jairus' house. Who touched me? Who touched me, he said. And you notice the text, he felt power go out of himself. He felt a power surge. Who touched me? The disciples were not amused. They had places to go. Jairus was an important man. After all, Jesus, we're following you. We got something political to pull off here. This man could possibly help us. He's an important man. He is a weighty man. We got to be on the move, Jesus, quickly. We got to go. Why are you stopping asking who touched you? Jesus, look around you. Everybody's touching you. They're thronging around you. Their frustration had to increase when 
a trembling, fearful woman. A woman. You know, in that, in that culture, uh, women uh, were at times seen as just a notch above property. We've got an important man who needs our intention. This woman fell before Jesus and told him the whole truth. I am unclean, and I know that I've touched your garment, now I've made you unclean, but if you only knew what the last 12 years of my life have been like, who knows how long it took her to tell the whole story. You think Jesus is interested in your story? You think Jesus is interested in the, in the details of your story? You think Jesus doesn't know your story already? <laughs> Jesus is concerned about the tiniest details of your story because you are not tiny to him. The disciples had to be trying to figure out why Jesus was putting the brakes on the the Euthios Express to listen to this woman when an important man in the synagogue needed his attention. A synagogue ruler, a man who certainly would be more beneficial to the movement they thought they were starting than this, this woman. Yet he slowed things down And he saw her, and he listened to her. He healed her. Go in peace, he says to her. This is not a polite way for Jesus to exit. Shalom, peace. She had not known a moment's peace for 12 years. She would walk away in freedom. I can only imagine what would begin to happen in her own experience there. She began to laugh and and to dance uh, along the way. It had had to be breathtaking uh, for her, the the way this man had, had healed her, right? She had to feel like she was just flying. Her faith, not her effort, not her touch, her faith made her well. This is crucial to the doctrine of justification by faith alone. She brought nothing to Jesus but her despair and her need. You have any of that to bring this morning? Any of you have any despair and need you can bring to Jesus? Jonathan Edwards lived from 1703 to 58 said that the only thing that we bring to the table in our salvation is the sin that made it necessary. Any of you have any despair and need you can bring to Jesus? She had a weak faith and a strong savior. You see, the object of justifying saving faith is not your faith. However strong you wish your faith could be, the object of your faith is your Savior who is stronger than you can possibly imagine. Faith is the alone instrument of justification that lays hold of the efficient cause of justification who is Jesus. You see, weak faith in a strong Savior is a mighty thing indeed. Just then someone came with the devastating news. Jairus, I'm so sorry. Too late. She's gone. No need to trouble the rabbi now. Before Jairus could let his situation interpret the truth, Jesus said, as it were, Jairus, you came to me because you believed I could prevent death. Don't you think I can reverse it? What has happened in your world that has redefined the truth? What has happened in your world that has redefined Jesus for you? Has death or loss or your own failures or just a combination of weary and weariness and anger and boredom and fear caused you to sort of recreate Jesus in your own image? 
cause you to think maybe he doesn't want to be troubled by you. You're not important, right? We need to stop recreating Jesus in our image. He's not, he's not flaky like you and me. Jesus is not flaky like you and me. Jesus will never tolerate you, never will. Jesus will never tolerate you. He's never going to put up with any of you. We tolerate stuff we don't like. We put up with stuff we don't like. Jesus will ever only delight over you. Zephaniah 3.17, The Lord your God is mighty to save. He is in your midst. He will quiet you with his love, and he will rejoice over you with loud singing. Hebrews chapter 2, he is not ashamed to call you his little sisters and his little brothers. Jesus will never put up with you. He will ever only delight over you. (laughs) They get to Jairus' house. There's a team of professional mourners. Even a a peasant with little means was required to hire a couple of flautists and a a mourner, a female wailer, uh, when a death occurred. You can imagine the band of professional mourners, a man as important and as affluent as Jairus had on hand. Jesus said, the child is not dead, but sleeping. And the professional mourners became amateur scoffers. They laughed at Jesus. They ridiculed him. The fake mourners laughed at the one who would soon truly mourn in John 11 at the death of the grave of Lazarus. Jesus sent them away. And as their laughter filled the air, he took the girl's parents and Peter and James and John into the room where the, the, the oxygen had just been sucked out. The deafening silence of, of death's dark shroud filled the space. He had been touched by an unclean woman just minutes earlier. Now the rabbi of life does the worst thing imaginable. He touches a corpse. Talitha Kumi. It's Aramaic. Little girl, rise up. She did. He told them not to tell anyone. No one would understand that the touch of Jesus was more than relief for a grieving family at that moment, but it was a preview of the cosmic scope of redemption, wherein by his victory over the grave, a resurrection ripple effect would release through all of creation and free it from its bondage in Romans 8 verse 21. A resurrection ripple effect that comes with the resurrection of Jesus. You ever read Matthew 27 verse 51? where Matthew tells us that when Jesus was raised from the grave, that there were saints buried in Jerusalem that got up out of their graves and just walked back into town. And Matthew doesn't stop to explain it. He just keeps on going. Yeah, this happened. And he just keeps on going. A resurrection ripple effect, a power surge with the resurrection of Jesus that brought the saints out of the grave in Jerusalem in Romans chapter 8 is going to renew the whole cosmos when you and I receive our resurrection bodies, the final manifestation of our adoption as daughters And sons, Jesus was putting death on notice that its days are numbered. He came, Jesus did. Just a couple of months ago, we celebrated Advent and the coming of Jesus. Why did Jesus come? Why do we celebrate the birth of Jesus? That cute little baby in the manger scene came to reign as your eternal king. Something fierce was laid in the manger that night. Laid in the manger because he was given to be food from the beginning. 
laid in a manger, coming really, according to Hebrews 2, for two things, to destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all of us who through our fear of death were held in lifelong bondage. Jesus came as the destroyer of death. And if you have ever lost, if you have ever mourned, if you have ever stood at the graveside of someone you love and you care about, and everything is just falling apart all around you, and fear is just sinking in, please, please know, that because of the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Christian burial is not the disposal of anything. Christian burial is not the disposal of anything. We dispose of stuff we don't need. We dispose of stuff we don't want. Christian burial is a resurrection deposit because Jesus has promised, 1 Corinthians 15, that he is going to make a resurrection withdrawal on that great and last day, and he's going to turn burial ground into resurrection ground. And that tearful march to the cemetery is not an acquiescence to death. It is a faith-filled defiance of death because we believe in the one who says, Talithi kumi. We believe in the one who says, Lazarus, come forth. We believe in the one who says, I am the resurrection and the life. We believe in the one who says, behold, I am making all things new. C.S. Lewis says, Jesus has forced open a door that had been locked ever since the death of the first man. He has met, fought, and beaten the king of death. Everything is different because he has done so. This is the beginning of the new creation. A new chapter in cosmic history has opened. He says in mere Christianity, and that is precisely what Christianity is about. This world is a great sculptor's shop. We are the statues, and there is a rumor going around that some of us someday are going to come to life. Resurrection. This undeniable miracle is because of undeniable mercy. Why why did Jesus delay? Why did Jesus delay? Couldn't he have gotten to Jairus' house sooner? Why did he ask Why did he take time to ask this woman about her story? Why why did he call her out? Why did he take the time to do this? Two reasons. One, for her, so that she could hear what he was about to say over her. And number two, for the crowd, so they could hear what he was about to say over her. What did he say over this woman? This woman who was unclean, unseen, unwanted, daughter. Daughter. She is not despised any longer. She is daughter. She is not dismissed. She is a daughter. She is not despicable and never was. She is daughter. She is no longer destitute. She is daughter of the father who owns a cattle on a thousand hills and the hills upon which they graze. Her situation does not define her. Her savior defines her. Let her alienation give way to adoption. Daughter, trade in your Bloody rags for a robe of righteousness, Isaiah 61, 10. Dipped in the blood of the lamb, Revelation 7, 14. Now she had someone advocating for her, and so do you. Hebrews 7, 25. He is able to save completely, Hebrews says, those who come to God through faith in him, for he, Jesus, always lives to advocate for you, to intercede for you. Her her issue of blood was over as she was healed by the one whose blood would spill warm for her, warm for you even now. As Charles Wesley has taught us to sing, five bleeding wounds he bears received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. Forgive him, oh, forgive, they cry. Forgive him, oh, forgive, they cry. Nor let that ransom sinner die. And when we meet this woman in heaven, she can point to his five bleeding wounds and preach to us the gospel that got her and us there. 
No more miraculous word has ever been spoken than the word of cleansing and healing spoken by the blood of Jesus. She who could not dare enter the synagogue would enter the very heavenly holy of holies when Jesus hung on the cross and tore the veil in two, Matthew 7, 27, 51. And so do we. Where do we touch the hem of Jesus' robe? Because it's a rather, it's a rather ominous scene, the holy of holies. Isaiah 6, 1-5, in the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. The doorpost shook, smoke filled the place. The seraphim had six wings. With two they fly. With two they cover their feet. With two they cover their face. They cry out, holy, holy, holy. Kadesh, Kadesh, Kadesh. The whole earth is full of his kavod, his glory, the, the weightiness of his, of his character. Who are we speaking of there? If you turn to John chapter 12, verses 37 and following, we read that it was, it was the pre-incarnate Son of God that Isaiah witnessed in that vision. Isaiah saw the eternal Logos, the pre-incarnate Christ, and it was the weightiness of the pre-incarnate Christ that crushed Isaiah and let him know that, that even at the very thing that he could commend himself with, his lips, he was a preacher, a prophet, even there he was unclean. How are we going to touch the hem of Jesus' garment when he is that holy? And in and of ourselves, we are so desperate. Because of the gospel, we read that that holy, heavenly, heavy one is also our high priest. Hebrews 4, 14 to 16, therefore, since we have a great high priest. You see, that's what makes it good news and not just news. It doesn't say there is a great high priest, but that we have him. That's what makes it good news. Therefore, since we have a great high priest, Jesus, the Son of God, who has passed through the heavens, let us hold unswerving to the faith we profess, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Isn't it good to know that Jesus does not scold you for your weaknesses, but he sympathizes with your weaknesses? I love the language of the old King James. We do not have a high priest who is untouched by the feelings of our infirmities. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is at all points tempted, even as are we, yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach boldly, boldly, the throne of grace, not with arrogance or timidity, but with a holy, grace-enabled boldness like this woman. This woman who knew better than to get near a crowd, knew she could get near the Christ. Approach boldly the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. See, Jesus' delay here was for the sake of discipleship, and it always is in our lives. Jesus' delays in your life is always for the sake of your discipleship. Always is. He has us wait upon him so that he can work upon us. And he's ready to work upon us even now. A couple of details in our text. One remarkable and another rather common. When the woman touched him, Mark says that Jesus felt power go out of him. It's remarkable. A sort of sudden brownout experienced in his humanity. For her to gain, he would lose. For her to be made strong, he would feel the weakness. By his stripes, we are healed. Isaiah 53, verse 5. We are the branches. John 15, 1 to 17. We have no life in and of ourselves. We must suck it out of the vine who is Christ. He must die the death we deserve that we might have life we could never earn. But did you notice his final word in this text? After all this is going on, he's healed a woman. 
He's raised a little girl back to life. He's made foolish the scoffers outside who had laughed at him. (laughs) And what's his final word after all this? Give her something to eat. It's a rather common thing. Eating. Or is it? She has been brought from death to life. Let her eat. Death can't win. Let her eat. The taunting laughter of the mourners would give way to the glad laughter of her parents. She's alive. Yeah, get her something to eat. Jesus has brought you from death to life. From darkness to light. Ephesians 2 verse 4. Are you hungry? You ready to eat? You are alive in Christ, y'all. It is time to eat. A meal is set before us. He is present here by his Holy Spirit. A meal that tells us that Jesus became weak for us, died and rose, that death would not have the last word over you and those you love. You have been raised spiritually from death to life and you are guaranteed to rise bodily, physically in your resurrection body. And Jesus says here as it were, my children, arise. Let my daughters and sons eat. Gracious Father, we thank you. We thank you that your word is true. Your word inscripturated and your word incarnated. And we would ask now, Lord Jesus, that uh, by your Holy Spirit, you would be our table servant, our table host. Uh, This meal paid for and spread at the cost of your blood. Your blood, which would pour forth warm for that dear woman, has poured forth warm and even now is warm for us, for our healing, for our hope, and so that death would not have the last word, so that disease would not have the last word, so that deriding and us feeling despicable would not have the last word, but that we would feel ourselves and know ourselves to be daughters and sons, disciples, ready to learn of you and find rest. We offer our hearts to you promptly and sincerely. Touch our lips now and let us taste and see, Lord Jesus, indeed, that you are good. For we ask this in your precious name, the seed who crushed the serpent's head and the Alpha and Omega. And everyone said,